Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, church. It's good to be here. Greetings from the mothership, if I can put it that way. We are uh, so thrilled with what God is doing here. I remember watching the, the first service here and just being excited about this church and all the potential here. Uh, and to be here is even more of a joy. Uh, Pastor Ben's a good friend, a dear friend of mine, and uh, there's a void in my heart now that he's here because I have no one left on the pastoral staff to talk sports with. Um, I would walk in, be able to talk to him about the latest trade that came down or about any sport at all. And there's a couple of guys that will talk some sports, but you guys know your senior pastor, he's a, an aficionado of all sports. And so uh, I miss his friendship there. He, uh, the first ministry that I got to do with him, he, we had just recently come to the church, my wife and I, and he invited us to uh, come on a college retreat with him to Catalina Island. And so here I am, I'm from Texas. I'm going, Catalina Island, this sounds great. This is real swanky. You know, what kind of church did we end up at? We're going on, well, we get there, and he took us to this retreat center called Campus by the Sea, uh, which there's no electricity, there's no cell phone signal, and the walls in the cabins don't reach the ceiling. So you sleep with all the other critters that decide to sleep in your bunkhouse with you. So I went from thinking, what kind of church is this to what kind of retreat center is this, and where am I, and what is Pastor Ben thinking? But uh, we had a great time, and he's been a dear friend since then, so it's a joy to be here. It's an honor to be here and standing in uh, this pulpit for him this weekend. By the way, he is not kicking it easy this weekend. He is down at HB, Huntington Beach, preaching for Pastor Bobby Blakey this weekend. So keep your pastor in mind as he is preaching down there as well. Well, my wife and I are here, and uh, our five kids are, are back home. We parceled them out, and I learned after the first service last night that having five kids is not a shock uh, out here like it is in California. People here in California, you have five kids, and they look at you like you are personally responsible for global warming. Uh, <laughs> the daggers in the eyes come out, and they just think, you are taking valuable oxygen that I'm going to need later in life for you and your family of seven. And you park in the minivan. You go into Costco, and there's like two single 20-year-olds in there walking around looking at you evilly, and you're like, Costco was made for me and my family. You don't, like, that's, this place is for us. So I know I'm in, in good company here. Um, but we've got five kids, and our last two are twins, which was as shocking to us as it is to everyone else who sees them and is like, those two look exactly the same. Yes, that happens sometimes. And uh, they're five now, and quite often I will be home on a Saturday morning or a Monday during my day off, and, and I'll be sitting with them, and, and all of a sudden a pressing need will arise in their heart, like they'll have a hangnail, or they'll have a question about something that Bluey said, um, and they will get up, and like a heat-seeking missile, they will seek out their mom, wherever she is in the house. She can be behind multiple closed doors, some of them locked, and they will pick the locks, and they will find her, and they will say, Mom, usually in tears, with much urgency, I have a hangnail. I need help. And they go to her, and it's not really their fault, but she will often look at them and say, Do you not realize, did you not see the perfectly capable parent that was sitting right next to you on the couch? downstairs that you left behind for this mission to come find me. But again, it's not really their fault because they live the majority of their lives with her as their source of help. They're with her for the majority of the day. As I'm in the office, as I'm at work, they know that mom is there and that she is the one that teaches them and guides them and leads them, instructs them, feeds them, protects them, helps them. And so when they have a need, they are hardwired and it's their first inclination, it's their first response to say, I need to get help and mom can help. Well, church, for us, that needs to be God. 
when a need arises in our life, when a need arises in our heart, when we're facing a trial, a tribulation, a period of distress in our life, our first thought needs to be, God can help. So often we're prone to look at ourselves or to look to other people or to look to another institution and look for help there. But before we go anywhere else, we need to first go to God. And that's what David does in our Psalm, Psalm 86, that we'll be studying together this morning. If you're not already there, please open up to Psalm 86. And as you do, I, I love the Psalms for their honesty and their boldness. I work with college students back in Compass Elisa Viejo, and I'll often get a question along the lines of, can I be honest with the Lord about my emotions? Which is just a funny question to ask, isn't it? Considering that God is omniscient, yes? He knows all things. And so if we are thinking, well, I can't be honest with the Lord about how I feel right now, we're functionally denying a doctrinal confession that we have that God is omniscient. God knows how you feel. He knows your burden. He knows your distress. And I think David understood that. And so David is quite often honest, but he's also bold with the Lord. As he is in this psalm, pick up in Psalm 86, verse 1. Incline your ear, O Lord. Literally, bend your ear towards my request and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. If you look above verse 1 in Psalm 86, you'll see a little inscription there that says, A Prayer of David. We've been in the Psalms at this point in the 80s, and so many of them are from Asaph or others, and David has been non-present here in this section of Psalms. And so this is a a unique interjection where David's now back on the scene, and this is a, a prayer of David. But unlike Psalm 51 or Psalm 32 or some of the others that give a description of the circumstances facing David when he wrote this, we don't know exactly what David was up against. But we do know it wasn't his best life now. Look at the descriptions. He says, I am poor and needy. In other words, I've got nothing, God. I'm destitute. I'm I'm in an abject state of want and despair. I'm needy. I'm afflicted. I'm in a wretched state. I've got nothing to to offer. I'm destitute, Lord. We know there were times like that in David's life. As he was running from Saul, as he was running from the Philistines, as he was running from Absalom, There were times that David had nothing and was completely dependent on the Lord. And there may have been times in your life where you were in that situation. Maybe times even now where you feel like you're in that situation, whether it's financial or or not, you may sit there and say, God, I'm at the end of my ropes and I have nothing. I, I need you. I'm desperate for you. I'm afflicted. I'm needy. He goes on, preserve my life. Literally keep me from dying. My life, God, is, it's, it's in the balance. I need you to keep me alive right now. How fundamental the need was for David. Save your servant. Be gracious to me, God. To you do I cry all the day. Those times of suffering and trials and tribulations that we go through where the need is just impressed upon our heart every single second of the day. Where we feel the weight, we feel the burden, we feel the grief, we feel the sorrow, and we are prompted by the Spirit over and over and over again to pray, God, please bring me out of this valley. Please bring relief. Please answer the prayer of your servant. 
And then he says, to you do I lift up my soul. The word for soul there in Hebrew is nefesh, which means life. He says, God, my life is in your hands. David is in a a desperate strait at this point. Whether it's running from Saul, or whether it's running from the Philistines, or running from Absalom, wherever he was, he was in need. And I don't think this was a time of God's discipline necessarily in his life, although he experienced those because he appeals here to his godliness. He says, preserve my life in verse 2, for I am godly. He's appealing to his integrity. He's saying he's been trusting in the Lord, your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. So David has been leaning into the Lord, and yet he's facing trial. He's facing tribulation. He's facing want. He's facing need. And he turns to God. And that's what we need to learn right here because David doesn't just give himself up to to wallow in despair. David is not just resigned to some fatalistic depression here of saying, well, I guess this is just the lot that I have in life. No, David knows there's someone can help. And that someone that could help David is the same person that can help you and I today, the same God that can help you and I today because he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And so as we think about how we respond to periods of need in our lives, the first thing that we need to do is we need to turn to the Lord. Point number one this morning is this, cling to God in the midst of trials. Cling to God in the midst of trials. Once when I was asked to preach in Aliso, I was getting ready on a Saturday afternoon or morning before going into the office, and I was thinking, I've got plenty of time, sermon prep, everything's going to go well. And then my kids were running around upstairs in our house and we've got hardwood floors because those are the slipperiest types and they lead to slips and falls and injuries. And so that's why we have them up there. And they, on top of that, we're in socks, which just makes it even more slippery, which is all the more fun and dangerous. Sure enough, our middle child, Luke, who is our wild child, he's the one that you can pray for the most of all of our, of our children. We love Luke. He's six. He's running upstairs, slips, Boom, loud bang. And sure enough, my wife and I looked at each other and we counted one, two, and then there's the scream. So I go upstairs and I'm thinking, okay, I'll just go up and be dad. And I'm thinking there's a scraped knee, something happened. But no, he slipped and hit his chin on the railing of the stairs and split his chin open. So lunch is coming up. I'll spare you the gory details, but he needed to go to the emergency room. So I pick him up, I put him in the car and I'm thinking, okay, we're going to sermon prep at the emergency room. So we go to the emergency room and Right before we left, though, his brother, his oldest brother, in a helpful way, explained to him what stitches are. (laughs) Yeah. So you you can imagine how that drive went. Dad, am I going to have to get stitches? Is it going to hurt? Is there going to be a needle? Is it? How do the stitches come out? When do they come out? Do I? Can we just? Isn't there? Can I just have a band aid? We get there, scared. I picked him up. I said, Luke, I don't know what what they're going to do. But we're here, they're going to help you, but dad's here with you. So I'm not going anywhere. And Luke was clinging to me like a monkey. Like every limb that he had was wrapped as tightly around me as it possibly could be. And he did not want to let me go. And so I took him back. I took him into the the waiting room. I took him back into the emergency room, uh, kind of triage area there. And we were waiting for the doctor and he just had a death grip on me. And the doctor came in and checked him out and Long story short, he was fine. He's still alive. Everything's good. And split chin, we, we fixed that. But he was fine as long as he knew that I had him. As long as I had him in my arms, he was good. Y'all, we have that access to God. 
And David had that access to God. And so that's where we turn when we're in trials because we've got a God that cares for us more than I love my son and I love my son enough to give my life for him. The writer of Hebrews tells us that we've got an access that, that David didn't even fully comprehend and understand because we look back at the cross and the empty tomb. As the writer of Hebrews say, we have, says we have a, a high priest, one who is able to sympathize with us, one who has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So what does he say? So therefore, church, let us draw near to the throne of grace and mercy to find what in time of need? Help in time of need. See, you've got a God, church, that you can turn to, that you can cling to, whatever the trial is that you're going through. You've got a God who understands, a God who empathizes, a God who loves you, a God that's not going to let you go, a God that's got you in a way that is far greater than what I could offer my son as he was so afraid of what the doctor would do with a needle and thread. And David turns to him and look in verse four. He says, gladden the soul of your servant. What an odd prayer that is to pray in the midst of such a trial. His life is on the line. He's running. He's afraid. He has nothing left. And he says to this, this to the Lord, gladden the soul of your servant. For to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving and abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer and listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you for you answer me. David is clinging to the Lord in prayer. saying, God, I, I need you. And look at verse five. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving and abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. He's holding fast to God. He's holding fast to the, the character of God, who he knows God to be. And he's reaching back and alluding to, before he's going to eventually directly quote from it, Exodus chapter 34. In Exodus chapter 34, Moses asked God a question. He said, I I want to see you, Lord. And the Lord responded and said, well, you can't see me the way you want to see me because no one can see me and live. And so God takes Moses and hides him in the cleft of a rock and passes by. And Moses, it says, sees the backside of his glory and As he's passing by, the Lord declares and proclaims in Exodus 34, 6, his name, the Lord Yahweh, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. See, David knew the same God that Moses knew, and you and I, church, know the same God that they knew. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He's unchanging. He's immutable, and he is the one to whom we must turn in trials and and in the valley, and in suffering, and in despair. And see, we have to turn to him above and beyond anyone else because there's no one else like him. And so our hope right now, church, is not in midterm elections. Our hope right now is not in a a new administration. Our hope right now is not in the, the Ten Commandments going back up in the schools. Our hope right now is not in a nation becoming more moral. Those are all fine things for us to desire, and we should pray for those things and and seek those things in whatever capacity we can. But guys, our hope is in God. Your hope is not in a better job, a bigger house, a different diagnosis from the doctor. Your hope, church, is God. Your source of confidence is God. The one that's going to deliver you is not a drug or a doctor. It's God. It's not a counselor or a a, a new neighbor moving in next door that's going to be easier to live with. No, your, your hope to get through the trial, the valley, whatever it is that you're walking through, is this God. 
Some of you are facing trials right now. You've lost a job and you've got to interview after interview after interview and none of them are panning out and you're sitting there going, okay, when is one going to come through for me? Or one of your children has rebuffed the gospel over and over and over again and you fear that they may never come to faith and repentance in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Or you're in a marriage where you've got an unbelieving spouse and that's led to petty arguments that blow up into conflict and you feel like you're trapped in this cycle that you can't get out of. Or your diagnosis recently came back with the word terminal attached to it. Those are big valleys. But let me ask you a question. Who is God in the midst of those valleys? Are you clinging to him? Are you holding fast to him? Is he in your mind this good, forgiving, sovereign, merciful, gracious, loving, faithful God that David knew, that David clinged to in the midst of his valley? So that we can pray with David, gladden the soul of your servant. Gladden the soul of your servant for you, O Lord, are the one to whom I lift my soul. That's a comfort to us to think we have that God, that he's there that we can cling and hold fast to him and turn to him in times of need. Speaking of comfort, drop down to verse 14 because he continues to begin to make these requests of the Lord for deliverance in verse 14. He says, Oh God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life and they do not set you before them. So here we find out more about David's circumstances. He's being pursued by this group that he defines in a few ways here. He calls them insolent. They're pride. They're arrogant. They're boastful. They're wicked. And they're ruthless. They're out for blood. And the blood that they're out for is David's blood. They want him dead, whatever the cost. And they do not set the Lord before them. They are a godless group. And they're coming after David. I mentioned earlier, David does not wallow in despair. Look at verse 15 in your Bibles. What's the first word in verse 15? But. But sets up what? It sets up a, a contrast. See, David doesn't just give his laundry list of his suffering to God and then continue to give his laundry list and, and then just lay it all out there and, and then just kind of say, and, and, the, and that's, there it is. That's the end. You know, David is fighting for the comfort that can be found in who God is in the midst of the valley. Because look at verse 15, that contrast, that, that word but signifies that, that he's shifting here, his focus. Yeah, Lord, here's my pursuers and they're bad, they're wicked, they're evil men. Verse 15, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now he's directly quoting Exodus 34, 6. He's reaching back and saying, thanks, Moses, and he's dropping that into his prayer right here in Psalm 86. He's remembering and recalling who God has always revealed himself to be and remembering that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And so, church, for us, as we bring our requests, bring our needs to the Lord and say, this is my circumstance, our, if I can define it this way, our meology, right? If theology is the study of God, meology is the study of ourselves and our circumstances. And we're really good about knowing what our meology is. We can look around and tell you, this is how I'm suffering, and this is what's going wrong, and this is the, the valley that I'm in, and this is how I wish my life were better. In the midst of, of our meology, we need to remember and be informed by our theology. And that's what David is doing here. 
verse 15, he quotes again, Exodus 34, 6 directly, that God is merciful. What does that mean that God is merciful? Well, mercy is not getting what you deserve, what I deserve. What do we deserve as sinners, church? We deserve the blank of God, the wrath of God. Well, God's mercy is that he withholds that from us. And so God is a merciful God to us in the midst of our trials. That is a comforting reality for us. But not only that, he's gracious. If mercy is not getting what we deserve, grace is getting what we don't deserve. And what we don't deserve as we church sit on this side of the cross in the empty tomb is we don't deserve the righteousness of Christ that's been merited, that's been counted to our account for us. That's, that's the grace of God in its fullest extent. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the what? The, the righteousness of God. Did you know that your righteousness is a merited righteousness? And before you start texting Pastor Ben, it's just not merited by you. It's merited by Jesus. That's the righteousness that we get there in 2 Corinthians 5. It's a, a righteousness that he earned. That's why his first 33 years or so of life were necessary. Because he was living a perfectly obedient life to God and all of the credit that he got, boom, God in his grace takes it and gives it to us. That's grace right there, getting what we don't deserve. God is a gracious God. Church, we need to remember that in the midst of the valley, in the midst of the suffering. Third, God is slow to anger. Oh man, I'm so thankful for that because can I just tell you that I can be a knucklehead still sometimes? It's a theological term. I'm so glad that God is, is patient with me. I'm so thankful that he is slow to anger with me. Abounding in steadfast love, that covenant love that God has for us as his people. He's abounding in that. He's not going anywhere. God's never going to wake up and stop loving you. And so you can be at the bottom of your life. You can be in the lowest point that you've ever been and know and remind yourself your theology is that God is abounding in steadfast love for you still today. He loves you and he's abounding also in faithfulness. He is the rock. He is the stronghold that we can always go to and he will never not be. He is always going to be who he has revealed himself to be. And that's where our comfort comes from. And so David contrasts this. He says, here's, here's my pursuers. They're insolent. They're ruthless. They don't set God before their eyes. That's David's pursuers. But David's God is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and loving and faithful. You see how David is informing his meology with his theology. And so he pleads again in verses 16 and 17, turn to me, be gracious to me. He's asking God to be who God is. David's knowledge and understanding of who God is informed how he's praying. These are bold prayers, but David is simply asking God to be God, to act in accordance with his character. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant. Save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, O oh Lord, you have helped me and comforted me. David knew not only that he could cling to God, but he clinged to God because of who God is. And that was key to how he approached this trial and valley that he was in. Second point this morning, church, is this. Let your theology inform your meology. Let your theology inform your meology. If you're on a device and you're typing meology and you're going, it's red underlining every time, am I misspelling it? No, it's not a word. I just made it up. So just go with me. 
We understand our present circumstances as we understand our God and who he is. And we find comfort there, right? Second Corinthians chapter one, what does Paul write? Blessed be the God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction. How does he comfort us in our affliction? By getting us out of the affliction? Sometimes. But foundationally, he comforts us in our affliction as we know who he is and the type of God he is. He comforts us with the knowledge that he is unchanging, that he is good, that he's gracious, that he's merciful. It's who he is that is our stronghold. It's who he is and the God he is that is our comfort. There's a refrain that goes back and forth in the church that's been around for a long time, but it goes this way. God is good what? All the time. And all the time what? God is good. You did well, Pastor Charlie, wherever you are on the reading, responsive reading. See, we're, we're into it now. We're responding. This is good. God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. Do you believe that? Okay, do you believe that in the valley? Do you believe that through the tears, through the pain, through the suffering, through the heartache, through the question marks, through the uncertainty? God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. It's, it's only a right theology that will give you that understanding of your present circumstances. God is good all the time. Daniel chapters 1 through 6, we see examples of what this looks like lived out. You've got Daniel and his three friends that are taken captive from their home, taken away from their families, taken away from the temple, taken away from everything they knew and understood about what it was to be part of the people of God. And they're put in one of the most godless nations on the face of the planet, and they're enrolled in their Ivy Leagues. And in chapter 3, you have one particular example of, I think, the theology informing the meology where you have three of those friends, Rack, Shack, and Benny. Yeah. Last night, I mentioned those three. There was your blank stares at me. <laughs> no VeggieTale fans comes on Saturday nights. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're brought before Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar says, hey, there's a problem because there was a command that went out. Fall down and worship this golden image. And these three had a choice to make, and they chose... Essentially, functionally, practically, logically, they chose death over disobeying the Lord. And they're brought before Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar, being a, you know, a merciful and gracious guy like he was, says, I'm going to give you a second chance. And he said, when you hear the sound of this music, which must have sounded horrible, because if you read all of those instruments that played all at the same time, there's no way it sounded good. He said, when you hear the sound of the music, I want you to fall down and worship the statue. And I love what comes in their response. This is one of the most brave heart moments in all of the Bible. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, chapter 3, verse 16 of Daniel, answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, if you're going to throw us into this furnace, which, by the way, was heated so hot that when they were thrown in the furnace, the residual heat was enough to kill the people that were throwing them in. If this be so, if you're going to throw us in there, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. This is the first mic drop of all mic drops. I mean, and we don't have to imagine the response because the king is enraged at this and commands that they're bound and thrown into the furnace. But y'all, this is theology informing meology. They're standing there in the presence of the most powerful man in the known world at the time. And he's threatening them with their very lives, saying, I'm going to kill you if you don't do this. And yet they knew their theology was right in saying, God does not want us to disobey him. 
It's better that we perish than disobey God. And so their theology said, no, we're not going to do that. And then when they're threatened, their theology says this. You know what, Nebuchadnezzar? God is able to deliver us from that fire. He can. They had an understanding of God, that God's more powerful, that God could supernaturally intervene and, and save them from the flames in this furnace. They knew enough about God to trust that. And yet, notice what they say. He's, he is able to do that. But notice what they go on to say. He will deliver us from your hand. You see the difference there? He can save us from the fire, but maybe he won't. But guess what, Nebuchadnezzar? Even if we die in your fire, God still wins. He still delivered us. Because we're not going to be here. And we're going to be with him. And so do it. Bring it. Whatever you're going to bring at me, go for it because God's got me. Right? Church, that's, that's meology that's informed by theology. And so for us, as we go through a trial, there's a hope that we have that, yes, God can pull you out. God can give you the job that you need. He can pull the cancer away from your body. He can give you a good marriage. He can save your kids. He can do all of these things. He is able to do them all. But church, he will deliver you through this trial. He will, because there's a day coming, Revelation 21, where he's going to wipe away every tear from your eyes. And death is gone. And conflict is gone. And, and brokenness and sickness and disease and sorrow, heartache, all of it's gone. Why? Because sin is gone. Because we are with God and with Jesus, and he's there. And, and that's the end of the story. And that's where we're heading if you're in Christ. And so, church, you can have confidence to endure the trial, endure the tribulation, because God's going to deliver you. That's a, a, a theology that informs our meology so that we can say, okay. See, because our comfort is not found in what God's going to do for us, but who God is. And who he is is never going to change. And so we can find comfort by knowing he's able to intervene and pull us out of the valley we're in right now. But even if he doesn't, we can say with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know what? We're going to stay faithful to our God because he's going to deliver us no matter what it looks like. Because his character, what's his character? He's good. He is merciful. He is gracious. He is abounding in steadfast love. He's abounding in faithfulness. He is powerful. He is kind. He is compassionate. He is loving. He's just. He cares for us, his people. Again, our, our comfort comes from who God is, not necessarily what we want him to do for us. So we can trust him. We can know him the way that David knew him. You, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And so then he asked God to simply be God. Turn to me and be gracious to me. But what do we do while we wait? What about the interim? Okay, we, we pray for God to deliver us from the trials and we trust him and we cling to him and we know his character and our confidence in his character. And we have this future hope that no matter what, we're going to be with him for all of eternity. But what about in the process? What about Monday morning? What do we do right now? Look at verse eight. David prays, there's none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you. Lord, and shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. One of the things that we always have to keep doing, no matter what we are facing, is we have to keep praising God. 
We have to keep worshiping him. And that's what David is doing. His life is on the line. He's, he's saying, God, I'm, you have to save my life because I, I'm going to die if you don't. And yet he's, he's praising God. There's none among the gods like you, oh God. And, and maybe your, your theological red flags are going off going, wait a minute, what does he mean by among the gods? It's a lowercase g, but what is he talking about here? Well, Psalm 82 talks about the Lord holding court um, among the, the gods, that the Lord is sovereign over them all. And I, I think what we see here and there is a picture that is, is given a little bit more detail in Job, in the first couple chapters of Job, where God has the, the sons of God come before him, and one of them that comes before them is Satan. And God has that interchange, where have you been? And roaming to and fro, have you considered Job? That whole interchange. See, those that were gathered, the sons of God, the gods, as David refers to them here, were not gods as far as deities, but gods as far as the, the principalities and the, the, uh, the powers that work in this present darkness as they're even described in the New Testament. These are the angelic and demonic forces. And David is saying, God, you are God over them all. You are the most powerful being there is, is what David is confessing. And that's so important for us as we worship God in the valley is to remember who he is and to worship him for who he is. He goes on, nor are there any works like yours. David is remembering and praising God for his track record. In Psalm 78, David goes back and, and or Asaph rather, goes back and commends the, the generations to, to tell future generations about God's greatness, about all the things that he's done from creation through the Exodus, through all of the, the great things that he had done for the people of Israel. The psalmist says, I want you to, to commend those to the future generations. Tell them about God's track record. Well, David's remembering God's track record in Psalm 86, and he's saying, God, I know who you are and the great works that you have done. And he's praising God for those great works and also reminding himself and preaching to himself that if God has done great things in the past, he can continue to do great things as we move forward. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord. Now he's acknowledging that God is the creator here, praising him for his role as the creator of all peoples and that all people should come and worship him and glorify his name. For you are great and you do wondrous things. You alone are God. As David is setting up and praising God and worshiping God, and really throughout this entire psalm, he's acknowledging that God is, is the Lord of everything that he's enduring right now. That God is sovereign over it all. In fact, seven times in this psalm, David refers to God as Lord. And you might think, well, that's no big deal. It's, it's all over the place in the Old Testament. Lord is, is Yahweh, L, little capital O, capital R, capital D. But if you look in your Bibles, it's seven times Lord with capital L and then lowercase O-R-D. This is a different Lord. This is Adonai that he's using here, not Yahweh. And Adonai is the Hebrew word that refers to, to God as the sovereign one, the master, the ruler, the ordainer. And so David in the valley seven times acknowledges that God is the sovereign one over his own suffering, over his own pain. And he's praising God for that. And rather than a cruel reality for us that God ordains our trials and tribulations that we endure, it should be a comfort for us. You may encounter a trial next week, but that trial, while it may be a shock to you, is not a shock to God. Our suffering, our trials happen to us. They don't happen to God. God is the one leading us into the trial. And again, you might think that that's cruel, but rather it's comforting because there's a, a truth that undergirds all of this, and that is God never does anything without purpose. 
He's not ever up in heaven thinking to himself, well, I'm a, I'm a little bored, so I'm going to pull out my divine magnifying glass and fry some ants today. He's always intentional with everything that he does. And everything that you encounter is brought into your life by God with a purpose and with intentionality, including the trials that you endure. And that's why David prays in verse 11, teach me your way, O Lord, that I might walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Teach me your way, that I might walk in your truth. Unite my heart. Give me an undivided heart so that I am not distracted to want to pursue anything else or anyone else but you, God, even in the midst of the valley, even in the midst of the trial. Keep my heart united in a fear of God. In the valley, David wanted to know what God wanted him to know. This is the kernel, this is the core, this is the heartbeat of our prayer from the valley, and it needs to be this. What do you want me to learn in the midst of the suffering? What do you want to do in my life through the pain that I'm enduring? What is your purpose behind the pain, God? Because I know you have one. And so, yes, in the valley, we can pray for deliverance, as David has done multiple times, as we've already read in Psalm 86, but it has to be undergirded with this other prayer that is the foundation that is God, I I don't want to short circuit what you're doing with this trial in my life. So teach me. Teach me what you want me to learn in the midst of the pain. Point number three, final point this morning is this. Commit to God's purpose in the pain. Commit to God's purpose in the pain. Paul did this, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Or chapter 12, rather. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. He says this, so to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, because of of the, the revelations that he had been given, Paul says, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. And so here you have Paul saying, Look, I I suffered and there was this thorn in the flesh and we don't know what it was, but there was this thorn in the flesh and it bothered him enough that three times he went to the Lord and said, please remove this. Whatever it was, please take it from me. And so it's not wrong for us to bring our trials to the Lord, our pain to the Lord, our suffering to the Lord and say, Lord, please remove this pain, remove this trial, remove this suffering from my life. And yet, Paul says, the Lord didn't remove it. Instead, in verse 9, Paul writes, but he, God, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul came to learn the purpose of the pain that God had inflicted upon him was that he might boast in the power of of God. That in his weakness, as people would come alongside Paul and say, Paul, how do you keep going through this? He can say, I don't know other than God sustains me. That it's God's power that gets the glory. Paul was in tune with the purpose for his pain. David's prayer is appropriately humble in light of the God that he's praying to here. He wants to know what God's purpose is in the suffering. He wants God's will to be done, not his will to be done. Because so often we can say, or, or I at least am tempted to pray, teach me your way, O Lord. Okay, I'm, I'm good with that. But then I'm tempted to follow that up with, and, and make, make your way, God, match up with my way. 
So teach me your way as long as your way looks like this. But that's not the example we find even from our Savior, is it? Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane three times, praying to the Father, Father, please let this cup pass from me. This suffering that I'm about to endure, I don't want to endure this. If there's any other way for this to to happen, please let this cup pass from me. And then what did our Savior follow up with? But not my will, but what? Your will be done. Church, in the midst of our suffering, that needs to be our prayer as well. Father, please take this trial from me. Take this suffering from me. But not my will, but your will be done. Teach me, Lord, what you would have me learn in the midst of this. In some ways, it's, it's like being on a boat that's a little ways from the shore and having an anchor and throwing it to the shore. You've heard this illustration before about prayer. But sometimes we are, are deceived into thinking that we're pulling the shore to ourselves. And the, the idea is we're pulling the will of God to our will. But if you've ever been on a boat and pulled yourself to shore, you know that you're not pulling the shore to you. You're pulling yourself to the shore. And so in prayer, what we're doing in the midst of the trial, what we're doing is we're taking our will and saying, God, make my will line up with your will. Teach me your way that I might walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name, God. More than an end to the suffering, more than an end to the sorrow, more than an end to the pain, more than an end of the anxiety, we should desire that God teaches us what he wants us to learn in the midst of our trials. So David said, I give thanks to you, verse 12. O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. There it is. What gives David the whole mindset of the the psalm is verse 13. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. You've already done the greatest work, Lord. And we, again, can look back at the empty cross and the empty tomb and say, amen to that. That if you're in Christ, the, the heavy lifting has already been done. He's already done the greatest thing. He saved you from the pits of hell by giving you Jesus Christ. He has redeemed you in Christ. He saved you from his wrath by pouring out his wrath on his son. And so we can say, I'm going to praise you regardless of what happens in this trial because you've already delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. So teach me what you would teach me. And unite my heart to fear your name. If I can do this, I want to end with a passage in Romans. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 29. Romans 8, 28 through 29. It's a, a passage I'm sure you know well, and I'm sure you've heard it misquoted. Because in Romans 8, 28, it says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For good. See, here's our problem, is we want to define good. So we're sitting there and we wake up in the morning and the Ferrari's not in the driveway and we're going, God, your good's not working. Or maybe that's not even asking too much. We, we wake up and the job that we thought we were going to get was given to somebody else and we say, God, your good's not working. Or we thought the the next round of of chemo was going to get rid of the cancer once and for all, and it didn't. And we say, God, your good's not working. Or we thought that that our 
our unbelieving spouse was right on the doorstep of salvation and, and then they turned away again. And we say, God, your good's not working. But that's all because we want to define good. But we don't get to define good because he did in this because the verse keeps going, doesn't it? In the rest of verse 28, it says, for those who are called according to what? His purpose. And we have to say, what is your purpose, God? Because that's intimately connected to our good. Verse 29 answers that. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined or purposed that we would be conformed to the image of who? His son, whose name is Jesus. So our good is that we would be made more like Jesus. So church, everything in your life, including the trial that you're walking through right now, is that you would be more like Jesus. God's doing everything that he's doing in your life. The good stuff, as we would define good, the hard stuff, the, the, the tears, the sorrow, the heartache, all of it is, none of it is without purpose. But it's all that you would be more like Jesus. That's what he wants for you. And that's what he's doing for you. And it's a lifelong process. I don't know if you know the story of, speaking of David, but Michelangelo's David statue. It's a, a beautiful work of art and it's, behind lock and key in a museum, and it's, a, it's an international, it's a global treasure. But it wasn't always. Because the block of marble that, that produced the David was twice rejected by two master artisans that looked at it and said, it's, it's too malformed, it's imperfect, it's too flawed, I can't do anything with this. So the first one came along, and they had been, he had been commissioned, and he said, no, I, I can't work with this, it's... it's it's too flawed. And he rejected it. And then they commissioned a second one who came along and, and was a seasoned, mature artist, looked at it and said, no, I agree. It's too flawed. It's too imperfect. I can't work with this and rejected it. And then they, they took it and they put it in the maintenance yard of one of the, the local churches. And it was outside, exposed to the elements, suffering more abuse at that point in time. Until along came a young Michelangelo who said, I'll take a shot. And Michelangelo took the same malformed, imperfect piece of marble and he picked up a hammer and he picked up a chisel and he began to go to work on it. And he began to take off large sections and chunks until he could begin to make out a, a, a form. And then he used finer chisels and finer instruments and, and tools there. And until finally David came out of this malformed, imperfect piece of marble. And now everyone goes and looks and marvels at David and says, wow, this is amazing. But to get from the ugly piece of marble to David was a violent process at times. Painful process at times. Large things, large sections had to be removed. And even the, as it got down closer and closer and closer to looking like the final product, there were still things that needed to be taken off, still pieces that needed to be fine-tuned, sanded down, chiseled off until the final product emerged. You know, not to step on any toes, so let me put myself in this, at the front of the line in this. You know, we are all the imperfect, malformed piece of marble. God is the artisan. Not wanting to make us look like David, but wanting to make us look like Jesus. And there are going to be times in our lives where he's got the hammer and chisel. 
There are going to be times in our lives where it hurts. There are going to be valleys that we walk through, trials that we endure, that are going to be painful. Some of them long. But the confidence that we can have, the confidence that David had, is that all the while God is doing something. And see, our confidence is a little bit better formed than David's was because we have the rest of scripture and then we get to read about the rest of it and we can read Romans 8, 28 and 29 and we can have confidence, church, that God is making us look more like Jesus in the process. And that's a good thing. And there's gonna come a day, John talks about it, when we will be like him for we will see him. And that's that day. That's the day that we long for and we can't wait to get there. But in the meantime, here we are, right? Here we are. And if the, the options are, well, I can have a pain-free, happy-go-lucky life here and yet die and not be with Jesus and not be like Jesus, or I can live as a stranger in an exile here and it's going to be painful at times and there's going to be valleys I walk through, but God's going to be working on me the whole time to make me look more like Jesus and there's going to come a day I'm going to be with him and, and I'm going to be like him because I'm going to see him. And I, I pray that for the rest of my life, I'm, I'm always going to want that more. And so with Psalm 86, it's the prayer of the needy. We can turn to the Lord. We can cling to him and hold fast to him because we know who he is. Our theology helps inform our meology. In the meantime, we trust that he's always working for our good. And yeah, maybe he's going to bring you out of the trial this week. Praise God if he does. But if he doesn't, he's still doing something for your good because he's making you more like Jesus. He'll make you more like Jesus on the mountaintop and he'll make you more like Jesus in the valley. And eventually you'll be with him and you'll be like him. Let's pray. God, what a great reality that is, this future that awaits where you're gonna wipe away every tear from our eyes. There's gonna be no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more disease, no more sin, nor any of its effects. We long for that day. We pray for that day. We are eager for that day. And yet in the meantime, we're here. Increase our faith, God, to know that you are always at work in our lives. No matter the trial that we face, you are working to make us more like your son, to make us look more like Jesus. And so at times, God, if you have to pick up the bigger chisels, pick up the bigger chisels. If at times you need to sand off some rough edges, God, sand off some rough edges because we desire to be like Jesus. Help us to live that out this week. We pray for your name and for the glory of Jesus. Amen.